0: And welcome to Return to Gilead. I'm Michael LaFavor. I'm Ryan Matlock. And today we are so honored to have with us the executive producer for season six of Down Gilead Lane, Simon Guevara. Welcome to the Yay. show, Simon. It's great to have you here.
1: Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for, uh, hey, reviving Down Gilead Lane. It's really great to think back about it and appreciate you guys putting the effort into listening to each episode so intensely
0: well yeah like we we love going back through this show and when we we both discovered the show really late in life and we're we're just sorry that we didn't didn't know about it sooner and we're a part of this fan base sooner it's been so fantastic reviewing these episodes and we've been talking back and forth about like hey who are we going to interview for the season six finale or season four finale we got Beth Culp in season four and now I, I was really happy I was able to track down you so um, I'm really looking forward to talking about Gilead today. Thanks. So, why don't we just start off with a general question. How did you come to work for um, Children's Bible Hour, or CBH, and how involved were you in the initial production of the, like, the creation of Down Gilead Lane?
1: Yeah, yeah. I jumped in, uh, it would have been 2002, way back then. Um, I had gotten married to Alicia Heckman. Randy Heckman was the executive director. I'd gotten married to his daughter. Uh, he had uh, seven daughters. He has 12 kids total. Um, and so there at least was a good shot. I could have one of them. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) I married, I married Alicia in 2001. I was working in broadcast television at the time. Uh, and I just sensed a call towards mission and ministry that had actually preceded me meeting Alicia. And when Randy opened the door for me to jump into CBH, I joined in and, uh, came in as a marketing director for him.
0: Mm, So what did that job entail?
1: Uh, Down Gilead Lane was blooming at that point. We, they were just about in the middle of uh, recording season four. And uh, no, it might have been season three. And then contracts were on the table with Tyndale House Publishers. So there was a lot of optimism. The, the station growth uh, around the country and even globally was pretty exciting. So, you know, for a media-based children's ministry, this product was, it felt like it was blooming. And so, so many different opportunities to continue to expand the, the audience share which is what I did in broadcasting. I worked in local television, and my job was to help put more eyeballs on the news products and all the other you know entertainment products that the station offered. Um, and so I was tuned to you know ratings and you know trying to drive people towards you know uh, 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 being an audience member. And uh, and so that's how I came in. Uh, obviously, down Gilead Lane was a priority. We also had some print products and stuff that I was part of, of uh, promoting as well. What were some of
0: those print products? I know about the CDs, but I don't really know about. Anything else related to it?
1: Oh, oh yeah. No, CBH had print products that were separate to that, uh, not oh, okay. Down Gilead okay. Lane products. Yeah. So they had their one-year one year devotionals based on Keys for Kids material. Um, so part of my job was helping to edit and produce and promote those. And then the other half, we were also developing this massive website. Again, it had nothing to do with Down Gilead Lane, although there was the, the uh, ministry's website redo as well. But we had this online game we were working on that was really a massive investment uh, called King's Call. And so I was kind of helping market all of that, the print products, radio with down Gilead Lane. And then of course, we still had Keys for Kids on the air, but that was mostly in heritage mode. Um, and then we had this exciting website that was coming online. So I joined in at the kind of peak of all that. There was a lot of ambition and excitement of where CBH or Children's Bible Hour, as it used to be called, could go in this next stage under Randy's leadership. Well,
0: that's cool. you say Gilead was blooming back then what What were the ratings like for for Gilead or what were some of the responses you were seeing there in the early days?
1: Yeah, it was different than television where you you know you get an actual rating for us. It was about station counts and then also um air uh placement on air so you know for example, there's a big difference between being on at six a m on a Sunday morning on an a m station you know in the in the outskirts of Kansas City, <laughs> but on the other hand, you had stations like you know well locally. WCSG in Grand Rapids, we had a, you know, kind of a Sunday night prime family spot. And so it was working with the number of stations that we had, helping them feel like, Hey, this is a really worthy product of moving into some primer, more prime spots and also uh, station relationships. But I think the focus at the time when I came in was helping develop the sales through Tyndale House, which felt like we put us, put us, just put us on a different level um, with, you know, the the Christian booksellers, you know. So if you remember back then, you know, you would actually go to a bookstore yeah. and you would buy physical CDs. <laughs> and so uh Tyndale House was taking the Down Gilead Lane product, packaging it in new new fresh artwork, new packaging, and putting it in the stores nationwide. And we were just so excited about that.
2: That's awesome. How did you use your background in marketing working for CBH as it kind of relates to Down Gilead Lane?
1: Yeah, I, I saw I saw something really valuable in Down Gilead Lane, just the uniqueness of it. You know, obviously radio drama is a pretty unique genre of, you know, sort of entertainment. I really saw some opportunities with it. I just saw the the storyline, obviously Beth's passion for it and, and uh, her creativity. She a footnote, she and my wife went to college together at Taylor University and were good oh, no friends way. then. That's awesome. Yeah that's great. So that's how Beth I got introduced to Randy, I believe, and then joined uh, CBH. So we had a good friendship with her, knew her passion, knew her talent. And uh, again, because you were working with a major player in Christian booksellers like Tyndale, you could just sense like, okay, this thing really could take off. And like I said at the time, you know, it seems like a billion years ago, you know, going into a Christian bookstore was a big fun thing. There were products and you'd buy them and it just felt like, you know, I could use my experience in marketing, which is a lot of just helping people get excited about something, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, helping uh, Tyndale. Uh, promote it and and, uh, get it going as much as we can. And obviously, there was an economic engine. Like We wanted more sales. We wanted more people to hear down Gilead Lane. We wanted to sell more CDs so that we could put the money back in the ministry and keep producing the show.
0: Well, Gilead was... I'm guessing it was being compared to *Adventures in Odyssey* in the early days, especially since Beth worked with Dave Arnold, who was the who's the executive producer now, and who was one of the the main writers directors back then. So, was there any contrast between the way *Odyssey* was marketed, or things where you saw how *Odyssey* was being marketed, and you wanted to do it differently for *Gilead*? Or was there not really a
1: comparison to AIO in those early days? Uh, I mean, there's always a comparison to genre, and then certainly like theme, and you know, it was. It was an interesting balance creatively uh, about how much do we parallel to a successful product in a sense like Adventures and Odyssey, and then how much do we distinguish ourselves? So that's that's what I think about is, okay, so, you know, for example, if, uh, you know, there's, you know, competing news products at, at 11 o'clock uh, on, on your local stations, how do we all do the same thing, cover basically the same stories and have weather and <laughs> sports, but how do we distinguish ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, uh, with Down Gilead Lane, I felt like it distinguished itself because to me it felt a little bit older, a little less silly, um, and a little <laughs> more heartfelt. I mean, again, no, no offense to uh, – No, uh, it's actually – I, I mean, few, you're yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, it's a little less silly and it's a little more realistic. And especially as I began over the years to become more influential in the story crafting part, we tried to make it appeal to a little bit older audience by having carrying some, you know, other type of maybe older skewing themes. So consistency with the, with the genre of, you know, family radio drama. But on the other hand, I think it distinguished itself for like a sweetness and, uh, you know, a little bit mature, you know, kind of content. Mm,
2: that's really good. As a result of that, uh, I think it's really impacted a lot of people and and, like been very meaningful, uh, especially like to me and my wife and to Michael. Yeah. uh, But even other people who have like uh, sent messages or uh, voice recordings into our podcast talking about what they like about the show. How have you seen Down Gilly Lane impact people's lives, or even your life?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, good question. Uh, So at the time, I wasn't a. I mean, I was a fairly new believer. I came to Christ as an adult. You know I was working on wow. television sure i came came to Christ on my thirtieth birthday, which i was it's a weird time because I'm like, was I a young adult not really but kinda <laughs> um, but I mean that's a whole whole podcast in its own, but I came to Christ it was a very significant surrender, and then shortly after that, I was being discipled pretty intentionally and began to sense like a call towards ministry and so how do I use you know maybe my experience in in broadcasting and creativity you know for the lord's kingdom and when I jumped into children's Bible hour, and again part of it was just, you know, I love my wife, I love her dad. Uh Randy was so great and he just, you know, he made an offer I can't refuse. So <laughs> I came I came in and uh it was it was just exciting. It was exciting to use the experience and skills and passion I have for like promotion and marketing and broadcasting and bring it into uh something that was for Christ. So I would say back then it was just uh, it was very exciting for me just to be, you know, doing something that was more specifically kingdom focused. And then obviously later, if we jump ahead to like season six and it's very specifically evangelistic, um, you know, even just to have kids who have the opportunity to be, you know, hear the gospel in a way that's transformative, let alone, you know, most of the audience we we knew and assumed were, you know, probably, you know, Christian most likely homeschoolers. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. I, I'm I mean, kidding, you're not wrong. I was in school too. See, there you go. Yeah, no. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, edifying them, but at the same time, expanding the, the reach of it so that maybe if it caught the ear of a non-believer, they too could hear it. Because, okay, look, way back when I was a super kid, like young, I remember having this little tiny radio and I'd sit in my bed at night when my mom thought was asleep and I would just scroll the dial very slowly, just listening to anything. And I remember, and I'm I'm from West Michigan, catching this drama. And it was like some mystery. It might have been some ancient, you know, kind of radio mystery drama theater thing, you know, with like the organ in the background. And I remember being so fixed on that. It was really, really cool. And so sometimes at the time when I was at uh, CBH, I just imagined that possibility that there could be some kid who's sitting in bed, scrolling around, listening for something to listen to and happens to catch familiar aged voices on the radio at some weird hour and would be impacted for Christ. And, and, and that's, that was always my hope. Well, that's awesome. That's did, awesome. Did you
0: ever handle the fan mail or fan emails of people who were impacted by the show?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. I think we all kind of would read them and celebrate them. So it's usually like, you know, CBH was very communal at the time. It was really a lot of fun. We had scheduled breaks twice a day, like at 10 o'clock and I think at 2, 3 o'clock. And it was like break time. And if we'd say it over the, you know, speaker, hey, time for break. And you'd head to the coffee, you'd head to the, you know, cafeteria. We'd all just sit and hang out and talk. And usually if there was, you know, positive feedback, you know, we'd, we'd hear it there. So mm-hmm. it was very communal. Everyone from the people that worked in like the warehouse part where, you know, you were packaging CDs and books for sales to the front office people. We'd all sit and gather for coffee hour twice a day. That's awesome. That's really fun. Yeah, it was, it was really sweet.
2: So I'm curious, were you married the whole time that you worked there or did you get married, uh, in like while you worked there?
1: Uh, so my wife, Alicia worked there, uh, at Mm -hmm. CBH and when I met her and then we got married, she, uh, went back to start teaching. Um, and I had just, as I, and it was a very quick, uh, romance. We, we met on a blind date, um, in December and we were engaged like three, three and a half months later. And then we were married like, you know, six months later. So, you know, we had gone from blind date to to, to being married in 10 months. See, Ryan, it can work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. I mean, I got uh, engaged
2: and then was married within three months after the engagement. Uh, the engagement took a little
1: bit longer, but that was because I was out of state mm-hmm. on an apprenticeship. But anyway, mm-hmm. even so. Well, you know when you know. And, you know, of course, yeah. we were a little bit older. Alicia was Alicia's a little bit younger than me. She's seven years younger. But let's see. I think we were. I think I was like 33. She was 26. So you know, we had we had some life underneath us. But yeah, we were married, and then I I was still working in television. She had gone back to teaching, uh, and then, like I said, and just you know, getting to know Randy more deeply as a son-in-law. As I said, literally, he he made me the offer. I can't refuse. So there, that's my worst godfather invitation. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it really was. He just we kept talking about what was going on at CBH and it just seemed like there was a hole there for a marketing person like me, a creative person that could help, you know, come on board and hopefully carry it to that next level. So that's, that's how it worked out.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Going back and looking at the credits of the first six seasons of DGL, you're listed as the producer for season five. That's your first big credit. And then after that, you're listed as executive producer for season six. So how did the producer role come about and what was that like for season five?
1: So when I came in to CBH, you you know, as I was talking about the marketing part of the Keys for Kids books, which are called one year devotionals, there's a lot of those. Plus making the mailing keys for kids, which was go- that was a book that they'd mail out you know uh, every quarter. I'd have to proofread that and get all that going and then there was the Tyndale House relationship, which was developing. Randy was chief on that, but I was secondary, you know, just because again, I understood the world a little bit more of like marketing and sales and stuff. Then there was this massive website project that they were building called King's Call, and so I was giving some creative input to that. And uh and then hey, uh, Down Gilead Lane, which was a big driver. So at CBH, there was so many things happening at the time. Um, oh, Randy also was producing his own little parent minute chat, which was pretty cool too. Ooh. So we just had lots of little footprints out there. And again, it was a lot of mostly my work was helping to drive, you know, all of those products forward, uh, you know, through marketing and, and building relationships. But you know, Down Gilead Lane was exciting. You know, I had a lure, of course, to like to just the whole process of recording, and so I think I started getting invited in season four. Yeah, season four to brainstorm story brainstorming sessions, and then uh, then scripts were fall- you know ending up on my desk, and you know I'd give input, so Beth would put a first draft out, and you know a couple of us would read it, offer some notes, and get it back. And then I think a few times I was in the booth during recording um, and just seeing how that process goes. And you know, she and Steve Odell. Uh, we're, we're a good team. And, uh, you know, there's just a good machine to it. Uh, but I think more and more I kind of kept morphing or kind of evolving into that. Um, and then by the time I, I didn't even realize, like, I guess season five came out. Season four obviously ended with such a big flurry. That was like the big capstone. Yes. Um, that there was kind of this, whew, exhale. And then I started to get more deeply invested as season five storyline was developing which was you know all like you you're you're crafting the storyline meanwhile you're recording season 4 right so season 4 is being recorded and edited meanwhile we're long working on season 5 storyline so i was working a lot with season 5 cuz like where do we go that was a big question like after this big revelation about about crazy grace where do we go and so i helped uh with everyone brainstorm and craft the arc plot of arc plot of season 4 and then carried on to season five. So then more and more I became involved in the production as a producer.
0: Yeah, Beth mentioned that after season four, like even during seasons one through four, she was ready to reveal everything and the whole backstory of Tom Richter. I think in the end of season one, season two, and then it kept getting pushed back further and further. And then she had to figure out new ideas and new plots. So uh, I'm assuming what you're referring to is working with her to try to see, okay, where are we going with this whole story? And then having her actually sit down and write the thing?
1: Yeah, yeah. There there were a couple other writers that we were working with that have some credits in there as well during the last couple of seasons. That's Leah Gartner and Sarah Osinski, right? Yeah, yeah. Good,
0: good, good names. Beth couldn't tell us uh, much about them. Uh, Do you remember uh, about them and how they got to uh, working on the show?
1: Um, I I mean, I believe it was a traditional, um, you know, kind of uh, hiring process. You know, we're looking for writers and obviously Christian writers. And, you know, there was a hiring process for both. Leah was there when I got there. Uh, but then she got married and left. Uh, Sarah came in while we were there and was working with Beth um, and kind of being mentored by her and, you know, slowly starting to work on, you know, carrying her own, you know, episodes and stuff. But, um, yeah, we worked with all of them. But Beth was always like the chief story, you know, crafter. Like it was obviously her her heart and passion. Right.
0: Yeah, Sarah Osinski's last episode is Heart and Soldier, which is the special episode before season five starts. And she had previously co-written a two-parter with Beth. So did she did she leave before season five and didn't write any more episodes after that, or was she still involved in the writing process after that? Ah, uh, man
1: i I don't. She didn't work there terribly long. I mean, she long enough that that I love her as a friend. I haven't been in contact with her in many years, but like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so she was there long enough, obviously, for us to get to know her and love her. And then Beth got married and moved away, and so Sarah was like the in-house writer working with Beth. so I, I imagine even if Beth is credited on episodes, there probably are you know underneath the the title of who wrote it uh, some Sarah marks on there, which um, oh, that's awesome. yeah, because I don't remember i don't she she was there for a while, I believe through season five okay okay well that's that's cool to hear. yeah. So your first credit
0: on the in the actual credits of DGL is that you directed the final episode of season four, the end of the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that credit accurate? And like, how did you end up directing that episode?
1: Well, uh, direction is it's uh, it's a weird t- like producer director. What really are they? You know, um, the producer to me is always the the explains the person who is is watching over the whole process from. Story development to finished product, you're kind of overseeing it, the whole creative process. When I think a director, at least how we applied it there, the director is more technically involved in the recording process and then like the technical parts of assembling the show, the music, the, the now again you have you have also audio engineers that are physically you know inserting the the you know clips and. Creating the sound uh, edits and stuff, but the director is there in, in in the way we used it in the recording session, helping get the read and the actors um, to perform in a way that's consistent with the script and then meanwhile the producer you' kind of over the whole process. Does that make some sense?
0: Yeah, that does make sense. So you were there uh, telling the actors what to do for this big finale?
1: Yeah, and I don't uh, i I don't recall I, I mean I know I had been in the booth many, many times before that. So part of what I did in broadcasting is I worked with a lot of of voice talent, Um, but a lot of it was either promotional voiceover, commercial voiceover, or even some documentary special show voiceover. So you get these really great talent uh, voiceovers and some of them you can hear on some like national, you know, uh, networks today. And you have your little script and it might be 30 seconds or a minute worth of copy or even just punctuated sentences. And I would work with them to get the reading that I wanted. So for example, like, did you know that your toaster could be housing potentially deadly bacteria tonight (gasps) at 11 after an all new (laughs) law and order, right? So scripts like that. Yeah. Um, and you'd be like, okay, that's good. But could you read deadly bacteria with a little more emphasis? Sure. You know, and then you'd switch to another, okay, now we're doing a, a PSA for, uh, you know, the American Heart Association. Can you, can you read that with a little more fun? Hey, we're having fun at the, the zoo, You know, uh, benefiting the American Heart Association, stuff like that. So I was accustomed to sitting in a booth and listening to the nuances of someone's speech to communicate emotion and affection and you know direction. So that's what qualified me, I guess, to be in the director's booth where you're now on a larger scale with multiple actors going, okay, hey, that was really great, but Timmy can you add a little more inflection to that sentence again? Let's start over again. And so that's what the director was. We would sit in the booth and they would read the, the script. And okay, that was really great, guys. Let's do it again. But this time, dad, can you come a little more forcefully with that line? And Timmy, can you react a little more? You know, that kind of stuff. So having been in the studio for a while and
0: uh, directing, those, uh, directing that episode, did you interact a lot with the actors? either in studio or out of studio because they were the same family for the whole run of the show.
1: They were. And now you remind me what happened is Beth had gotten married. She, in a sense, I would say, trusted me with that season four script, which was like the capstone of, finally, she had gotten to the ending that she had wanted in her heart. Yes. Before. And I remember her saying, you know, I really want you to direct it. I'm just remembering that now. But yeah, so that's what happened. Functionally, she was not able to be in the recording sessions anymore. She moved. So then I came in as as director for that final episode of season four, which was, you know, very emotional, big, big reveal kind of stuff. And then you'll hear me more often credited as executive producer. Also, uh, sometime later, I think it was in at the end of season five, Randy left the ministry as well
0: yes yeah mm-hmm. i'm I'm looking forward to talking about that in a, in a yeah. second
1: uh, there was one more episode that you're credited as
0: director on and that's home to stay which is the episode in which joan taylor passes away in season
1: five mm-hmm. uh, do you remember directing that episode at all i remember the episode i probably i mean i feel like I was in the booth offering mm-hmm. direction for many of the episodes of seasons five and six
0: okay Okay,
1: But I think probably where you hear me credited as director, it was because I was the only one there. Good interaction with the the cast, by the way. I mean, yeah, they were always, we had a mix of uh, actors who, and you probably know this, like super professional, you know, voice talent and actors from like big city Chicago. The Mueller's, yeah. Yep. And then you had some homegrown local talent from Grand Rapids, which, you know, has its own artistic community. And so, yeah, I had good rapport, but it took time to develop that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember anything about Chris Blair or uh, the little things that he would say? Uh, he was
0: the actor for Michael Morrison.
1: Yeah, no, great kid. Um, really distinctive voice. He was just actually kind of reminds me of my youngest son. He's just sort of a always on the move kid. Uh, couldn't hold <laughs> yeah. him still, kind of guy. Yeah. yeah, lots of energy. Yeah, I've been dying to try
0: to track him down for an interview, but I, I don't know how to contact him. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's just great to reminisce. So. Anyway, let's get to that point when Randy Heckman left uh, the show as executive producer and he shared with us when we interviewed him about uh, a little bit of why he left. But can you describe what that transition was like and what you eventually did as the executive producer of the show?
1: So the massive website project that we were working, again, there was so much ambition with with that. That was a big investment. I think the budget on that was like $800,000. Whoa. It, although if you look back, it was... Website of the year for national Christian booksellers, I think it was the it was definitely oh, awesome. It was an online game. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was so much ambition about what CBH could do and 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 the money was there. But then when that website kind of dried, it it didn't hit like it should have. It definitely got mm. some accolades, but it didn't hit. And then it also wasn't really, it doesn't return. Any investment, and, and you know, sort of end of the day, ministries have to have a business model that works. And uh, Randy, you know, left. You know, suddenly the website was up and kind of out. Uh, the Tyndale products weren't selling as you know, off flying off the shelves like we you know thought it wasn't like the next you know big thing. And so there was kind of this pullback of momentum. It's like the wave had crashed, I suppose. But meanwhile, we still have this really special thing, you know, DGL, and so. I began to put more focus on that because that was like, okay, we're going to continue forward. That needs care. And so ending season four, Beth was now remote, you know, being married, kind of trying to enjoy her life. But at the same time, she cared about, as you know, DGL so much that I was working with her with, okay, how do we take this thing to the next place that it can go and yet honor her desire to kind of finish it? Um, and so I, I feel like emotionally and functionally, she and Randy in different capacities or different ways sort of put it on my lap to carry it forward for the next you know, couple of seasons.
0: So what was that process uh, like for season six and eventually settling on the, the story of Caleb Richter? Um, were you involved in the, the planning for that
1: season? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, I was involved a lot with uh, the development of the season five arc plot with the tailors and then for sure more deeply hands-on with season six. Uh, you know, I'd say by, by, by my rule, generally speaking, I'm not a fan of sequels <laughs> because they don't work or spinoffs. There's, it's very few sequels that ever like supersede the, the heart of the the primary, you know, what, especially if you don't plan on it. So, you know, I felt like we sort of landed season four well and then we had to carry it forward in a way that was a little bit different enough that it wasn't just rehashing Beth's passion for it and so developing other characters and developing other storylines so it was still still DGL still Down Gilead Lane but the world had to broaden a bit so that's why we worked on the Taylors and and uh you know that whole uh storyline because it wasn't back to hey is Grace blind or not blind and what about Tom Richter stuff
2: <laughs> sure And as far as, like, a sequel, if season five is a sequel to seasons one through four, if that's, like, a way to think about it, I think it's a fantastic one.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
2: As far as quote-unquote sequels go. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and the way we've analyzed it, the way I I saw it when I first listened through the series, was that you've got seasons one to four that build up what Gilead is. And then, finally, Beth Culp is, uh, she's nailed the, the, I guess, the genre Of Gilead. And so continuing in season five just seemed natural. And at that point, everything was on a high from season four, five, six. Every episode was, I think, as good as the previous one um, because it's all Beth. It's all her helping this process. And I I guess the the whole team um, from CBH. But because she's already built up the story, there's no need to rehash uh, the. The previous story with grace we already know that so i think building on that with the taylor family and then with caleb i think that was a great move on uh y'all y'all's part
1: yeah i think she created the world and then we had to take it further and or take it somewhere else so you know again I, you're totally right seasons one through four finish a great story and they're like well now what do we do you know that's that's especially <laughs> not lame and so i feel like we did turn a corner a little bit it's like all right well let's Let's turn a corner and kind of go down this avenue and develop more of the teen storylines, which is what we were talking about. Maybe that's where we need to go with it to separate us a little bit more from Adventures in Odyssey. Let's start moving towards more uh, slightly older teen issues like a terminal mom who returns from from beyond. Sure, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So
0: can you share some specifics from those planning sessions? Like what were some considerations you wanted to make for the Joan Taylor arc and for uh, Caleb's uh, journey to faith?
1: Yeah. I mean, that comes from intense study of, you know, TV sitcoms, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I, don't, I do find like, you know, if you're if you watch, you know, much serial television these days, especially with those kind of shows um, on Netflix and things. The problem with them is it seems like they start them. They know what they're going to do for one season, but they don't know if they're going to continue and so by the end of the season, they're like, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to keep going. And then they end up making ridiculous, you know, kind of <laughs> subsequent storylines. And, you know, by the third season, you're like, this isn't really what I thought it was anymore. But it's because they're lunging along yeah. as they go, right?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like, okay, we got greenlit for another season. Yes. Uh, time travel?
1: Yes. <laughs> and that's exactly, that's exactly what happened with DGL. It's like, all right, season four, it was a beautiful baby. It's born. But now what? Okay. Well, now we have to go somewhere else that's, you know, again... Going to be consistent with the storyline, but take us in another direction. So it was let's have let's have like a a, where it's a it's a whole story arc curve plot arc that that exists in one season, and then we kind of build up to it slowly. And so that's what the vision was. Because and then I mean also, and maybe I'm lowering my voice because a little behind the scenesy. We didn't know how long this thing was going to keep going.
0: Yeah, Beth was saying that as well.
1: Yeah, so let's 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 do a great storyline for season season five. Oh, we're going to continue? Okay, let's do a really great contained storyline for season six. And then honestly, when I finished season six, I, I thought it was done. Yeah, like that, those final
0: episodes. And we, we have yet to review the final episode of season six where we just reviewed the penultimate episode and we've talked a little bit about the final one. But one thing that I, I said kind of off recording to Ryan was that the final episode really, really is a conclusion to Down Gilead Lane because it's going back through and referencing previous episodes and showing clips from other episodes and tying up all the storylines. So that was that your... Uh, Actual, like, were you treating that as the actual end? Because I think you could argue with season five, like with the whole uh, spring ball and stuff that there, it could continue past that. But then with season six, you have a resolute
1: ending to the show. <laughs> yeah. Season the end of season six. I mean, I have all the characters basically standing on the curb waving. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so that, that was something we noticed. We were like, oh, Beth picks up season six right where season five left off. And like, that's not super common in Gilead, but it's, yeah. it, was
1: pr- it was pretty fun. Well, it's because I, you know, um, Beth had for sure had needed to depart from the creative control of it. And I, I thought it was right to finish the storyline in a way that closed it. And then as I was I was then departing uh, CBH, I went more specifically into ministry, uh, which I can talk about in a little bit. But um, so it kind of landed the plane for sure, like, okay, this should be the end of it. And now... CBH is free to continue doing something else. We had talked about then literally having some other, you know, spin offs or sequels that were not related to Down Gilead Lane in some way.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, some other elements of season six, I think you'd mentioned to me, were the introduction of the Donner family. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about them at all?
1: Yeah. Um, again, local talent. I don't remember them, you know, well. I remember them being really sweet. But in terms of uh, bringing, persons of color if that if that's yeah. maybe what we're going for um mm-hmm. you know obviously the 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 wherever wherever really it is it's it was pretty homogenous that's never been a, a passion of, of beth she generally prefers more you know diversity and uh you know i on the personal side i did break a little bit of a barrier with the heckman family i'm i'm a hispanic and oh, okay. uh yeah so um i i felt like it's it's good to build some diversity into it again to kind of broaden the audience. And, uh, but more specifically, we're just like, well, it's high school, it's kids. And, you know, especially we're talking sports, let's have some, let's mix it up a little. We have some different characters in there. And the Donner family, to me, just brought a texture. Um, when you think about different voices and kind of different inflections and different attitudes, I felt like the Donner family just brought a, a nice, you know, kind of diversity to the world, both in their vocal tone and the way they said things and just what we thought also. Of, kind of behind their storyline experience that they brought um to the story
0: oh yeah they're fantastic sure. they're they're great characters in that final season and even mrs donner in season five she's one of the first characters to actually push back against monica richter in a right. way that actually works so was uh was she created before the rest of the family or were they all created at once and then slowly phased in
1: they were created i believe all at once but we made it we kind of slipped Mrs. Donner into the card pile like she'd been there the whole time. That's cool. So the way she's introduced, it feels like, oh, she was there the whole time, but you never heard of her. That's awesome. Rather than, you know, here's a new family has moved to town. You know, that, right, again, that's, right. that doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sort of sequelitis, sort of. Right, right. Well, anything else
0: as far as like plot or characters go that you wanted to, to share from season six or season five?
1: Yeah, we talked about it a little bit earlier in terms of, uh, you know, basically that the general audience. For, uh, for down Gilead Lane was Christian radio listeners. And then, uh, at the time, you know, uh, obviously online streaming was, was kind of new and exciting. And so people were streaming online, CDs were being sold. They weren't, they were never really selling a ton. Uh, there's also probably some vintage cassette versions out there somewhere if you ever get your hands on. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that out was be <laughs> fun to see. Yeah. Most of the stories were the lessons assumed, hey, you're trying to deeper, deepen your walk. And what I brought to, I feel like, to the storyline of season six is a uh, an intentional path for discipleship. You know, I, I think you have that, of course, with, you know, earlier characters coming to Christ.
0: Like Maya, right? Maya,
1: yeah, sorry, I just lost your name. But then Caleb later to me, and especially you, uh, young person to young person. One of my brother-in-laws, uh, Randy's son, was a teenager at the time. And he had a really great story of sharing his faith with a kid on his team. And so we pulled that kind of inspiration. Like, you know, actually, teenagers can talk about Jesus with their friends, and it should be natural and normal, and in some ways, even encouraging of a a decision to follow Christ. You know, it's not always bringing the kid to youth group and letting the youth pastor. Sometimes it can be, you know, students themselves, teenagers themselves sharing Christ with each other. It's not, not weird. And so we tried to make that, I, I, I feel like I helped invest that into the storyline of let's have two teenagers talking about Christ in a way that's transformative and evangelistic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the chemistry between, uh, Caleb's actor and Anthony's actor is really great. Uh, they have some really great scenes between each other uh, on the show. Do you remember any of the actors reactions to the storyline of what was going on or how they felt about either the the season ending or, uh, different moments in the studio? Do you have any of those memories?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there was a lot of excitement about it. I was listening back to the uh, second to last, I guess, season 11, episode 11. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I wish that dialogue about faith was maybe a little more natural, but it is, that was always one of the hardest parts about Christian radio drama is having people talk about something that's so real outside of the world of drama, right? So real, which is Jesus and his word and you know, the, the the call to faith or even to pray. It's really hard to make people pray genuinely through a script. And it's really, it can also be hard to put the proclamation of the gospel and an invitation to faith in a script, but yet make it sound so natural. Because it's really the most like natural thing of all things, you know. So that's the only thing that, that I think there was that, like how do we make this sound as natural as possible? But then at the same time, you got to hit theologically the right kind of buttons that a teenager probably wouldn't talk that way specifically. So that was kind of the dance of it. I, I think we did it pretty well. Yeah, You know, I think again, I wish it was maybe a little more natural.
0: Yeah. I think the, the way it starts between Caleb and Anthony is, uh, Anthony mentioned something about Jesus and Caleb goes, well, I hate to break it to you, but Jesus died like 2000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And Anthony goes, yeah, but he died so he could go to hell and wipe out sin and death. And I'm like, oh, okay. i don't know if I fully agree with that interpretation, but I guess Anthony
1: wouldn't yeah. agree with that. Yeah, and and in the messiness of it all, it's like it's kind of good because, you know, if you have teenagers that are sharing they don't do it technically perfect either. Yeah. Um, but yet there's something compelling about it. So that I think that's what we got to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really it is really great and we reviewed that uh I think on on Monday was when that review released and um we got a couple of good responses to that. Actually, I'll share a uh, a little bit here. We got some feedback. Uh, do you mind if I read this feedback uh, right here in the interview, Ryan? Sure, uh, Simon? sure. Yeah, go for it. We got some feedback from Ian, who says, in response to the pun of the title of The Price of Peace, which is five 6-10, the pun may not be in the meaning of the words alone, but in how they look. You only need to add an N to make it The Prince of Peace. Caleb is experiencing the most chaotic time of his life, but in this time he's introduced to The Prince of Peace. Was that uh, intentional, Simon? You know,
1: the naming of the shows was one of the funniest, fun brainstorming sessions we would ever have because we would have the, we would just have a few people come in, you know, and that goes all the way back to season three and four when I was there. They'd be like, all right, let's name an episode. And we'd sit and just like laugh until we, you know, couldn't talk anymore. And so I don't remember specifically those, but yeah, there's always like a little twist to it. And then finally, like, that's it. That's the name.
0: (laughs) So, just going back to we referenced this earlier. How did the the team prepare for wrapping up Gilead at, at the end of season six?
1: Well, because of where the the ministry was going, which there was a lot of transition. There was a new executive director, Terry Ritchie, right? Yep, Terry Ritchie. I was um, leaving soon. I don't. I think I had known at the time I was leaving. Um, Beth was gone, and um, there was just a big change in the air that it felt like the right thing to do. And I think there was even on the, on again, from Terry's end, and she probably could answer this more fully than I could. Was there like a, uh, a, maybe a need or like a, well, we can't really carry this forward without Beth and everyone else. And so it really did feel like we were closing it. I feel like we even had a cast sort of party at the end of six. Yeah.
0: Oh, maybe not a cast party. I, I, I mean, you listed off the cast in the episode. So like, it felt right. like, an, it felt like an, an ending, sort of.
1: Yeah. You read that pretty well. Like when I... We finished season 6 and it was you know edited and done and distributed for all purposes it seemed like it was it was done.
0: Yeah.
1: Um I I left CBH Ministries and then I believe there's a bit of space of time between season 6 and season 7. The balance between it all and you probably got this from Beth. Down Gilead Lane was hers. She had it in her heart before she joined CBH. And then CBH had been Developing a a story for a radio drama series and had gone through different versions of like what it could be. And then ultimately she presented Down Gilead Lane as like an option. And with some tweaking, you know, making the dad a judge, which was Randy's previous career. And, you know, originally I think they were like, let's have him as a family of 12. And it's like, well, no, it's not the Randy show. (laughs) You know. When she left, and then Randy left, and and then I was getting ready to leave, we really felt like Creative licensing, which I do understand a bit from, again, working in broadcasting. I understand, you know, copyright. I understand, you know, intellectual property. And I understand the nature of like an artist creating things. So that's the tension is that down Gilead Lane, the world belongs to Beth. But at the same time, the production of it, radio drama belonged to CBH Ministries. And so there was a tension there. And and it felt like the best way to resolve the tension was to end it. And so, I mean, you you might say, I think you could say, I sort of helped force land the plane because it seemed like this has to be over in order for her to continue to have intellectual property over that story, that world, which is so personal to her, and then allows CBH to go on and do something else, perhaps completely unrelated and then, then I, I kind of walked away from it at that point, and so I've actually never was never involved in subsequent seasons and have not listened to them either. Not because I'm embittered by it, just I don't have an interest. Okay,
0: I mean that's fine. It ends in a good place, so I yeah. mean, <laughs> The story is as far as as far as that goes. The story is complete, and I think you I think you did a great job with it. So thank you, thank thank you to you and to and to Beth and to the rest of the team for doing that. It's a it is again really really impactful.
1: Oh, thanks. No, it really was incredible. Run. I mean, it's fun to look back at it all. You know, we didn't get to the. And maybe one day, if you want to call me back for the Best Christmas on Record, which was an amazing experience of putting uh, an episode, a standalone episode of Down Gilead Lane, a one hour special on secular stations around the country. That was exciting. Well, we do have some more time here. Do you want to talk about the Best Christmas on Record? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, one for sure that doesn't need to be buried too deep into the archives. So, (laughs) Best Christmas on Record was a standalone special episode of down Gilead lane yeah. that was intended to air on stations uh, outside of the general distribution. So we worked on, uh, I had this idea, I think back in the early summer, I don't remember what year it was, might've been Oh three of producing a one hour radio drama and just, and helping try to get it distributed to public or secular radio stations around the country that needed airtime. Cause you know, Christmas day, and we actually got quite a bit of hit. We had to go almost, you know, one one by one calling different stations over and over again to try to get them to listen to the sample. And when they did, we ended up on some really great stations in, in New York City and LA and some other big markets in some pretty good time slots, like five in the afternoon or you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, dinner hour. Um, and it was it was marketed as this, you know, kind of Christmas, you know, family special. Um, we, we had to pull back a little bit on the, you know, kind of Christian emphasis of it, but at the same time, keep a heart of, you know, what Christmas is all about. Um, and that was really, really exciting. We, we ended up getting it cleared on some really, really great stations as well as, um, you know, some of the regular stations that carried down Gilly Lane broadcasted as well, but that was a lot of fun. That was really exciting. That's great. I don't think we know, we reviewed that episode a little while ago. I don't, I don't know if we
0: realized that the Christian emphasis wasn't as, uh, pronounced there, uh. Because, you know, it's the Morrisons and we're used to their integrity and their uh, th- their Christianity just being so pervasive in their lives. So, like, for us who know Gilead, it's easy for us to say, yeah, they're acting this way toward the Richters because they're Christians.
1: Yeah. You know, again, I, I didn't grow up a Christian, so I grew up watching, you know, a fair amount of TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I remember just, you know, those fun standalone, like, suddenly, like, you know, Happy Days has a one-hour Christmas special, right? So, I was kind of building off of those things sure. of, like, what about a special... <laughs> you know, down Gilead Lane Christmas special that could air, you know, almost anywhere. And so that was a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. That's Thank awesome. you for sharing about that. Yeah. I'm curious, what do
2: you think of the stories in down Gilead Lane now that you're like a parent of teens? Do you listen to down Gilead Lane in your household?
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird because now my my kids, we have five and uh, they're weirdly parallel to what the Morrisons were when I was working on DGL <laughs> and my wife was in the ministry. We didn't have any kids. Um, so now our oldest is is about to turn 18, um, and he's a runner and he's a very focused student. Um, oh, you know, it kind, wow. kind of reminds me of like Brooke. And then our second son, That's crazy. Milo, is like, you know, uh, personality. And uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, and then our youngest, our fifth born Harvey, is kind of like a Timmy. He's forever kind of young. And so um, it's a little bit weird, but they off and on have enjoyed DGL over the years, especially when we used do long car rides. And then recently, we were driving. We now uh, live in Chicago area. We were driving to Grand Rapids, and I said, "You know, well, let's just put on." I downloaded season six, which I have not listened to in a thousand years. And we started listening <laughs> to the first couple episodes, and you know, of course, they can't help but comment on like, "Oh, who's that person?" Or "That's Aunt Lori." Or "That's you know now Uncle Nathan, who's Timmy is is a grown man." They're like, "I can't believe that's Timmy." You know that that he's t-. so. But once they settled in from that, they really enjoyed the storyline. And I think we've only gotten through episode five of season six. Um, but they were like, well, it's pretty good. I like where it's going. And then, of course, my second son, who's into theater now, he always gives me lots of helpful critiques about what he would have done or not done. But, <laughs> You're like, this is almost <laughs> 20 years ago. Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun to have them engage. And I'm surprised at how much, how much it carries over today. Like it still feels fresh. Which is cool. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I get some swells of emotion in particular scenes. Just like I remember crafting that scene, or I remember, you know, especially like the emotional ones. I I remember Lori, you know, Brooke really moving us all emotionally because she's so talented. Yeah. And and the tears would be real. And it's like, wow, this is so amazing. So I, I definitely like reflecting on some of those, and then the odd jokes. And then I think I make a couple of audio appearances in there somewhere as an announcer, a football announcer or something like that.
0: Oh, cool. I'll have to be looking for that now that I know what you sound like. Yeah. Um, one of those scenes uh, I'm, I'm guessing that you're referring to with Brooke is going back to the one you directed where she's uh, upset at the whole story of Tom Richter and yeah. her, her father's trying to console her. Can you share a little bit about the emotions behind that and like how how you see that relating to the overall message of Gilead?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I wish I remembered more specifically that scene, because it's just I haven't listened to those episodes in so long. That's okay. Um, you know, you would think I just have them streaming on 24-7 in my, my world. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you produce them. You don't. You usually don't listen to stuff you produce after you produce it. It's it's a weird, well, yeah. you know, it's a weird thing, because okay, you have the printed script, and you can feel the heart of that, and then you have the talent there, the actors, and you're, you know, okay, settle in, or we, we go over it once, kind of in a cold read, and then, all right, let's do it again. You're trying to amp up the emotion a little bit more. And then you get that special delivery where it's like, all right, here it is. You can feel it all kind of peeking out. And the dad, of course, is such a, you know, a wonderful actor to play against. uh, uh, Lori was so great. And you get that genuine emotional and it's like, okay, get to the last, you know, uh, syllable on the last line of the page. And there's that quiet in the studio and you go, hey, guys, that was really great. Can we do it again? (laughs) <laughs> yeah Rodney Tesla who was our
0: uh who was like he was on the podcast after season three uh for us he he would share a little bit of that uh, he became really emotional in some scenes and then they would say uh Rodney are, are
1: are you okay he's like I'm fine I was just acting yeah and the actors would always especially the younger ones would always say the same thing like why like, well, <laughs> because we might get something a little different that probably will be the one but while we're let's just do it one more time, you know, because you never know if there was yeah. a mic hiccup or something, you know, so, yeah, it was, it, it was always fun.
0: Yep, I remember Chris Blair's inside, uh, like the inside joke with him uh, from other behind the scenes I've heard was him saying, dos tacos. Did we get it done in two takes? I don't yeah. know if you remember that at all.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They great. came up with their own little lang- language in the, stu- in the booth um, <laughs> to communicate, you know, because we would be like, let's say, okay, so they record, we get the moment. Okay, hang on a second. And we'd have to go back and re-listen. And meanwhile, they'd be muttering to themselves. So they had their own little culture going on in there. Meanwhile, we're separated by the sound booth um, going over our stuff. So That's fantastic. That was a lot of fun. Yeah.
2: Do you have any uh, advice on where to start for people who are listening who may be interested in like, a similar field of work, uh, whether it's like marketing or the producing of audio drama?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a worthy, uh, it's a worthy art expression. It's not done much uh, anymore, but I really feel like it's a worthy artistic expression because it allows the the listener to paint in their own minds what the characters look like and what the world looks like. And so I actually wish it was more um, used. My my son was doing some local theater here uh, in the Western suburbs uh, where it, and it's a really great theater. And they were doing some summer classes. Um, on vocal work. And I was encouraging them, and I didn't follow up because of then COVID kind of shut it all down, but to work on mini radio theater dramas. So I would say begin with that, like write it's basically like an audio play. Write something like that and then to begin to craft it. Basically using standard tools, you should be able to come up with something really great. But it's such a great artistic expression because you just have to use the listener gets to engage in the creative process with you. Whereas creating a video um, piece. It's like, I fill in everything. You, this is what, you know, Maya looks like. This is what's happening. This is what the house looks like. But in audio theater, it's like you have to, the The audience gets to participate with you, which is why I think it's such a, a worthwhile worthwhile artistic expression. So, I, I'd encourage you to start producing your own, you know, short, short program stuff, um, kind of one act, you know, sort of scenes and stuff. That may be great.
0: We've kind of uh, dove headfirst into this because we're currently producing two um, full-length audio drama episodes mm. and the, the process is very slow and we're, we're realizing that as we go forward but uh, we we had a story that we wanted to tell and that we uh, figured out how to adapt for audio drama so uh, that's been in production for a little while but I'm, I'm also seeing like as the executive producer of this project how getting people together especially when you're working on a really low budget like an independent production it, it can be really tough and communication can be really hard but Um, I haven't had a finished product yet, but I I assume the finished product is, is worth it.
1: Yeah. I, uh, only in the rarest occasions would we have to, and it was very frustrating at times when it's like, well, what actor couldn't make it? And so we'd have to record their lines, you know, separately. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would encourage you to figure out some way either to rent studio time or to set up your own multi-microphone, um, setup to have all the actors together because that that's how it actually all worked. Yeah. Yeah, we did. I
0: I had the actors like it was it was online because they're from different parts of the country or even different countries in some okay. cases. So it's it's not like everyone and nobody can be in the same room, but as much as I could, I would get them to be on the same call together and interacting with each other and that really worked. I yeah, could tell there were some good. scenes where they were really playing off of each other and it was it, it was a great time directing it.
1: Yeah, and like I said that's what to me makes it a worthwhile artistic expression is just like I said it's it's one of the few mediums where the artist and the 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 viewer or listener work together in creating the world. It's pretty cool.
0: Well, I guess as sort of a way to round out this review, what are you into right now? What what's your your line of work? Uh, how can people uh, find out more about what you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, thanks. I left uh, CBH Ministries and then worked at uh, worked at a church as a staff pastor for families and children, and then I started going to seminary, which. Uh, I knew that's specifically what the Lord had called me to do. Graduated years ago um, and now an ordained pastor. I was serving for 10 years in Austin, Texas. And now my family and I live in the suburbs of Chicago, just outside of uh, uh, Chicago, kind of Southwest-ish. I, well, if you're in the East side, you're in the water, but um, Southwest <laughs> of Chicago. And um, you know, I have, like I said, one, one of my, my sons is uh, very much into theater and he's doing really, really great at that. But yeah, I'm pastoring and I love doing that. I still love sharing the gospel through creative expression. And um, But it's fun to look back at that. And like I said, it was especially fun for me to look back at and listen back at, at season six and some other things that I was involved in with the later, with I guess the middle era of down Gilead Lane and just feel some measure of joy uh, that those are still out there. Well, thank you so,
0: so much for coming on, Simon, and sharing your insights. This is This has yeah. been a really great interview and I'm so glad we were able to track
1: you down thanks for giving your time on this podcast we really appreciate it appreciate you guys yeah thanks for keeping the keeping the world alive i i really am excited that it's <laughs> continuing to reach a new audience that's exciting to hear
0: in the meantime i'm michael i'm ryan thank you so so much for joining us and we'll see you next time as we finish our season six review on our return to gilead